Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden and you're listening to Queer Stories. This week, Nadine Shamali is a writer, researcher and social worker who tweets prolifically from at FEMO Collective. She's written for publications like SBS Voices, The Big Issue and The Guardian and has spoken at events like Melbourne Writers' Festival and Brisbane Feminist Festival. This story was performed at Queer Stories for Bleach Festival on the Gold Coast in November 2020. I'm telling a queer story that involves love. Love with a man. On some level, it makes me feel less queer. Maybe I should tell a story where I was queerer, more queer, my queerest story. But I wanted to tell a tale. And this is one that still makes my heart ache some days. But I'm no less queer for it. Finding love in the 90s was so different to what it is today. New Farm Coles had a queer singles night on Thursdays. One banana meant something and a melon meant something else. I was part of the first generation to find love on this new thing called the internet. In a place called MSN Teen Chat, I, Nikita Ferry, met one of my lifelong loves, Low Tech. It was 1997. There was no Facebook, no Insta, no MySpace, no Twitter, no Tumblr, not even Friendster, which some of the older ones here will remember. You communicated via messaging services with these cute new things called emoticons, where you could send a tiny picture of a teddy bear with its arms out as a hug. I hugged Lotek a lot. His real name was Nick, and he lived in New York City. Chatting to Nick daily was part confessional, part diary, a huge part of what we now call self-care. I would rush home from uni every day to see if Nick was awake yet, to tell him what I did in my theatre workshop and who I was crushing on. He became my collaborator, my conscience. I learned all about his dad, a Japanese migrant that married the Lebanese woman who birthed him, his life, his friends, and what New York was really like. They filmed that Angelina Jolie movie, Hackers, at his high school, so I watched it so many times for that second where you could see him in the background. When I had my first real kiss, it was with a girl. And when I lost my virginity with her at the car park at the Kangaroo Point Cliffs, overlooking the beautiful Brisbane skyline, Nick was the one I went home and told. When I tried ecstasy for the first time on my 18th birthday, Nick talked me through my come down on Tuesday. We joked about running away to Vegas and getting married. We had all the makings of the perfect relationship, friendship, care, understanding, He was one of the first people in the world to see my now all over the internet boobs. No, not a photograph that was developed by the old creepy guy at Kmart, but the 1998 version, an image of two round globes, my tits, placed on a scanner and uploaded to an email, which took 45 minutes to send. That photo still exists, by the way. A few times we did this thing called cybering. I like to think of it as dial-up masturbation. It was kind of like sexting, but with one of my scanned boobs up on his screen, a lot of one-handed typing, the other down your hands, and a lot of, oh, baby, yes, and some imaginary instruction. Nowadays, when I sext someone, 90% of the time I'm probably cooking dinner or gardening. But back then, it was a real thrill. At the time, I used to take, when it used to take half an hour to load one JPEG, having a real-life person there talking sexy things to you, it was a real turn-on. When Virginity Girl broke my heart, I went home and waited for Nick to wake. That difference in time zone was hard to navigate. It meant many late nights or early mornings. I wrote him a very dramatic and poetic teen angst-filled email that read, Nicholas, everything hurts. I wish we were closer. 
I wish we were neighbours. I wish we were roommates, bedmates, people that slept naked together. I wish I could roll over in the morning, half asleep, feeling you warm, pressing against me, bare skin and bones tight together as we drift off to sleep. I went to bed and woke to a reply. She dumped you, huh? Well, get your punk ass here already. So I did. We met and I think we immediately fell hard, but we were both scared. We were too young for the intense thing we had built online. We were embarrassed about all the cybering we did. So we did that thing where we become like siblings and pretended that we'd never talked about going to Vegas or getting married or even sex. He got a girlfriend and I was dating everyone. We would hang out together and I have such vivid memories of 3 a.m. karaoke in Queens and him holding my hair as I decorated the gutter. A year later, I left New York and returned home and things for Nick and I slipped back into our confessional, deep, safe love from afar. We were in love again, reporting daily, talking dirty. We switched back and forth between this cycle a few times. One would visit, the other would leave. We went to the Guggenheim on my 21st birthday and we were inspired to walk into the first tattoo parlour to get matching Warhol tattoos, like you do. We did this until 2007. With a marriage in Australia in tatters, clutching what was left of my heart, I landed at JFK. I'd hoped he would pick me up, but Nick didn't do airports. He hated them. He hated hellos and he hated goodbyes. The following day, I called my husband, Brooklyn to Brisbane, and I asked him if we were a couple. He told me he didn't know. He didn't have an answer. I needed to know, so I set a deadline. I told him he had until Tuesday. And if the answer was still, I don't know, then I knew we were over. What happened the next day was some romance movie shit that Nick and I had joked about over many, many years. I took the subway to 86th Street and I wandered to Central Park to meet him. As I ambled towards the spot behind the Met, where we had met so many times over the years, I looked down and there was writing on the path. Lyrics. Strange you never knew. Fade into you. Lyrics from the 1993 Mazzy Star song, Fade Into You, were written in giant chalk letters on the path. I followed them to the meeting spot, and there was Nick, goofy grin, holding a hand-picked flower and a giant, warm, fresh pretzel, two of my favourite things in the whole world. I cried, a lot. We spent the day holding hands and hugging and talking and laying out on the grass. We walked down to the new gallery so I could see these giant portraits by Klimt, of his impossible love, a woman named Adele Blockbauer. They had this love that spanned ages. They slept together, but were never able to be a couple. On the way home, Nick asked me, you coming to mine? I shook my head. I really wanted to, but I had to wait and find out what was happening with my marriage. I was scared. Scared to throw away what I'd spent years building back home for a fleeting chance with this man I loved for so long. Scared to kiss him, scared that everything would be go wrong and that I would be left with absolutely nothing. Nick texted that night. Glad we didn't do it, punk. Yeah, I replied. Yeah, you got your thing with him and I've been in a mess with a girl and her sister and no amount of Ajax is going to clean that up. So Tuesday rolled around and I called my husband. I asked him again, are we a couple? He was silent. He didn't know. That was enough for me. I had my answer and I hung up sobbing, my heart aching. I really, really wanted to call Nick. Whenever I have an existential crisis, I fuck someone new and failing that, I masturbate and cry. But this time, 
I fucked everyone. The next month, I didn't see Nick. It was a blur. My days looked like they were out of a Sofia Coppola movie. You know, those long, lingering shots with sunbursts and lens flares. But my nights were like electric neon lights, powdered substances, and all kinds of abject bodily fluids. Everything degenerated into some sort of hard, desperate groping, followed by some sort of festival of insertion. I became an advocate of fucking whoever was around, wherever I fell. Sex. Sex is funny, but not like in that ha-ha clown shoes way, more of a weird what-the-fuck-just-happened way. Even when it's excellent, there's this small part of you that refuses to believe it really happened. This part of you that kind of giggles at the absurdity of someone putting their something in your something. You press your food hole opening against their food hole opening, and somehow it feels amazing. When the festival of fuck finally ended, I called Nick. Finally, you asking me on a date, he said. I said, it's a date. You better get dressed up. After dinner, we walked back through the East Village to my door and I asked him up. He was awkward. He said he really needed to get back to Brooklyn, work the next day and all that. I was so disappointed. I really thought this was it. This was going to be the moment we could finally hook up. Ten years in the making. He did kiss me, long and slow. And he said, it's not the right time. You need to get back home. And he meant Australia, and he was right. He called me on the way home to check that I was okay. I thanked him for not coming in, for not taking advantage while I was vulnerable and hurting. He explained that if we would ever happen, it shouldn't be when I just left my husband and he was trying to break up with sisters. He came around almost every day for the next week. We did all my favorite New York things, parks, Bocce in Washington Square Park with the old Italian guys, pizza from Stromboli, hot dogs that were definitely gonna give me salmonella, I hooked up with Tim again, I said. What? Any good? Not really. Fill that gap, though. I get it, he said. I fucked the sister again. What am I doing? And we laughed. With that, we were back to normal. When I was leaving, I did one of those silly extravagant things. I bought him an Xbox so we could play Call of Duty together online, and he was genuinely touched. Not because of the Xbox, but because no one had ever paid attention to him eyeballing something like I did in the Virgin Megastore. For me, it was a no-brainer. He was my best friend. It definitely made things a little weird. I think he realized how much I truly, actually loved him. He didn't know how to thank me, so I told him to shut up and punched him in the arm. The night before I left for Australia, my pals threw me a going away party, and Nick didn't show. I bawled in bed that night, and all the way back to the airport, I was overwhelmed with what was ahead, and I was disappointed with what I was leaving behind. As I checked my luggage in, I see this guy, my half Japanese, half Lebanese friend, holding a giant pretzel and a puzzle book. He'd come to the airport. He hugged me hard and I waved as I boarded, but he'd already walked away. I assume he was crying because I'm amazing and adorable, but he probably wasn't. I opened my puzzle book and the front page said, yo punk, maybe next time, love you, N. I haven't seen Nick again. We played video games for a few years and the world changed. I still call him every single New Year's Day, no matter what, just to check if he's alive. Last check-in he was and he hasn't dated sisters again. Maybe next time. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Follow Queer Stories on Facebook for updates and me, Maeve Marsden, on Twitter and Instagram. 
If you enjoy Queer Stories, consider supporting the project on Patreon. Even $1 per month helps me continue to share these amazing stories with the world. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.